Well, as Kirsten said, my name is Mike. Considered a uh, just a real honor and joy to be with you guys tonight. One of the pastors here on staff, and just let me tell you, it is an exciting time to be a part of this church. Uh, Justin and some of the other members from the team are out in Portland at the moment recording the album, and all reports back from them are that it is going incredible. And so later this year, sometime November, December time frame, that project should be done. And I cannot wait to hear it myself. I can't wait for you to hear it. I know God is going to move powerfully through that. I'm just so excited. Some other really fun things going on this fall is going to be exciting. We're talking about this sermon series we have coming up called Astonishing, looking at Jesus and his accomplishments, really believing that that is going to be a powerful thing and that God is really going to, to minister in our church. And so just excited about that. Um, I joined up with this, the City Church team uh, probably first half of 2015. My wife and I, we got a one-year-old, and this place has quickly become home for us, and we could not be more excited to be on the journey that God has with each of you, a part of this church. All right, so if you've got your Bibles, we're going to get going here. We've got a lot to cover. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. All right, we're going to start in verse 24, go through verse 27. It says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. Let's pray. So Father, we come before you right now. We declare once more our utter dependence on you. We need you. We long to hear from you. Just invite you to speak to each and every one of us tonight as we open up our hearts to you right now. We love you with great adoration and affection for you. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Hey, let me ask you a question. What comes to mind when you hear the word discipline? When you hear the word discipline, maybe you think back to a time when you personally were disciplined. Maybe you got uh, grounded or something. You got in trouble growing up. Uh, when I think about this, I was thinking back on my high school years. And some of you know my story. I started following Jesus when I was about 20. And my years of 16 through 20 were, were pretty ugly. And that played out in a lot of different ways, all right? So one of the ways that played out was in high school. And so I, I kind of adopted this, this class clown slash thinks he's funny to talk back to the teachers type thing. And I got sent to the principal's office probably no less than 10 times in high school. So anybody else ever know what that's like, get sent to the principal's office? All right, me, me and Kaivon, that's great. So, so I would get sent to the principal's office, and there was this one teacher that I could not get along with. Her name was Mrs. Rinkavage. If you're listening to this, Mrs. Rinkavage, I'm really sorry for that because I was terrible to you. Uh, she taught biology and she taught chemistry, and we could not get along. And it was not her fault. It was completely mine. But she would regularly send me to the principal's office. And so we'd be in the middle of class, and I'd say something smart. We'd get in a little thing, and then she'd say, all right, enough, leave. And so this happened on a, on a regular, regular basis. The problem for me was that my dad was the principal. <laughs> and so, you know, that provided, that, that just 
lent to some, some interesting conversations, okay? So uh, initially it starts, all right, get out of here, go to the principal's office. And then eventually it's just like, go see your dad. And it's like, that, that, is a, that is a bit of a walk of shame. And so I just remember walking to my dad's office that's got the placard that says, Principal Tom Schnepp. And I'd knock on the door and I'd hear, come in. And I'd, I'd kind of crack open the door a little bit and, you know, he'd be at his desk and he'd look up and go, yeah. And I'd go, uh, Mrs. Rinkavage, and he'd go, what did you do this time? And they'd send me out and, you know, I would get severe punishment through school and detentions and all those things. And yeah, having the dad as the principal when you're sent there on a regular basis always has some interesting conversations in the car ride home as well. So I don't know if that comes to mind when you think of discipline. Maybe you, you swing on the other side. When you think of discipline, you think of somebody who, who can train really hard and who can focus on certain things. A friend of mine, Justin LePage, was, was in my office this week, and he was telling me that every morning at 6 a.m. he's at the gym, and then he's back every single day at 12 p.m., every day, day after day, hitting the gym. Severe amounts of discipline. You know, it's like most people know what it's like to be disciplined in at least one area of their life. Maybe you're a student, and your work life is kind of a mess right now, but you know at least what it's like to be disciplined in the areas of studies, you know? Or maybe you're a, a parent and things are kind of hectic uh, at work right now, but at home you're really disciplined in how you're raising your kids and all those things. Or, or maybe you're like Justin and you're really disciplined when it comes to things like fitness and diet and trying to be in shape and all those things. Most of us know what it's like to be disciplined in at least one area of life. You hear these stories about uh, the greats in things like sports and just the amount of discipline they had in their lives. I was reflecting on Michael Jordan this week, who's the greatest basketball player of all time. Sorry, LeBron James, but Michael Jordan is the best basketball player of all times. And it says that he would practice for like six hours a day growing up. And then even when he was a member of the Bulls and, and at his prime, he would take hundreds and hundreds of shots a day. It says he was often the hardest worker on the team. He knew what it was. And so discipline is, is sometimes not very enjoyable, but is almost always extremely profitable. Cultivating a disciplined life means doing those things that we don't naturally want to do in order that we would get the freedom to do the things that we want to do. You know, I was reflecting even as Dennis and, and Chrissy were playing and thinking just the, the countless hours and years of practice and training that has led up to them being able to have the freedom to stand before you and lead worship. And so they did these things for countless hours, again, and years, practicing, learning scales, practicing vocals, so that they could stand before you and not have to look down at their hands and experience the freedom of leading worship. See, Michael Jordan spent hours and hours training so that when the moment came and he needed to take that shot at the end of the game, he didn't have to think about it. He could get the ball, take the shot, and nail it. The interesting thing for each and every one of us as Christians is, is that the disciplined life that you and I are working to cultivate, the measure that which that becomes a reality in your life is the measure at which the call that God has on your life can be activated and actuated. I've seen so many stories of, of people who God has put just immense things in, and you see them, you say, it is so evident and so clear that God has incredible things for you. The problem is, oftentimes I've, I've seen these guys, and 
Their life gets off, off the rails because they've not learned what it looks like to have discipline in the areas of holiness and pursuit of Jesus. And so the call that God has on their life gets mitigated by the lack of discipline that they've developed. And so you, you very much can have an immense call in your life, and each and every single one of you do. The Word tells us in Ephesians 2 that God has set up things for you to do before you were even born. And there, there's this list of, of things that God wants you to accomplish both in you and through you. And the disciplined life is the gateway to seeing those things happen in your life. And the call of God, if you're not careful, can be dampened or even snuffed out altogether you don't learn what discipline looks like. And so these next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about this, this subject of spiritual discipline. And really, we're going to cover tonight one specific discipline, and then we're going to do the same thing next week. And the intention of this two-week little mini-series is not to wow you. It's not to come with, with some spiritual truth that's going to just blow your mind. It's really just to remind you of things that you already know. In the life of a Christian, there are these, there are these things that that require discipline. It's almost like adding a, um, a tool to our tool belt in our pursuit of God. And it's these things that we're not naturally bent towards, and yet when we choose to make them a part of our lives, we find God just increasing His grace in our lives. And so you've probably heard about some of them. When we talk about spiritual disciplines, we're talking about these spiritual habits that God has laid out for us in the Scriptures that when done regularly will produce a, a richer and a fuller life in Christ, a more abundant life, a one that is more intimate in relationship with Him. And you've probably heard of some of them. There are things like, like prayer, things like serving, things like giving, fasting, Justin's going to talk about next week, worship, and we're going to cover one tonight. We're going to lump two of them together, and tonight we're going to talk about silence and solitude. And what does it look like to develop in your heart this discipline of silence and solitude and to develop it enough that it becomes a regular pattern in your life and that God can use it to grow you? As a bit of a precursor to this, this series, it's, it's important to remember that spiritual disciplines are not in and of themselves the end goal. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, and he says the purpose of discipline is so that we would look more like Jesus, so that godliness would become an ever-increasing descriptor of our life, that it would prevail in us, that godliness would be one of the ways that people describes us, describe us. In Galatians 6.8, Paul writes about this difference between sowing to the flesh and sowing to the spirit. He says one of them leads to death, and the other leads to life. And he uses this analogy of a farmer. And the farmer doesn't have the ability to grow the plant himself, right? He, he's helpless to grow grain, for example. But he has the ability to, to work and toil and sweat and work the ground and water it and put nutrients in the soil so that he can let nature take its course. And likewise, these spiritual disciplines are, are not these flashy things, but, but they're our way of, of tilling the soil of our hearts so that God can then come and grow. By themselves, the disciplines, are, they're helpless to change us. You think of the Pharisees who were so great at these, these ways of pursuing God that God lays out in the Scriptures, and yet the heart never was to become more like Christ, and so the disciplines fell flat on their face. And so you've got to be thinking as we talk through this topic that the purpose of these is so that we might look more like Christ 
on the other end of it. I was thinking about this this week as I was walking through my house and flip on a light switch and, and on comes the light and you walk up to the kitchen sink and you, you hit the faucet and the water flows out. I don't have the ability to create electricity, right? I don't have the ability to, to bring water to my house, but I do have the ability to, to access it by flipping that switch or to make water flow by turning on that faucet. And likewise, these disciplines, they're God's way of giving us the circuits to connect and the, and the pipes that the water can flow through so that he can then flow his grace into our lives and into our hearts. And just finishing by way of introduction, it's just important to remember that these, these disciplines, when you talk about them, they sound a little bit boring, don't they? They sound like things that you've been hearing about your whole life. They sound like things that are unimpressive. And in some ways, they're even unimpressively mundane. But when you combine them with a heart that wants to be more Jesus, they become spectacularly potent in the Spirit. And we know that this is not about us earning the favor of God. If you've been around at any time, you know we love the gospel of Jesus Christ that is, that is freely given to us. But this is about recognizing the ways that God wants to pour His daily grace out onto us and positioning ourselves in the way that we might be able to receive that. Things that, if we're honest, we probably feel a little bit too busy for. It feels like we've got probably too many things to do to get around to doing these things. If we actually are honest, if we have a conversation about why we don't do them more, we kind of feel like, God, I have some other things to do. Busy. How many people here would say, my life is busy? My life is busy. If you're not raising your hands, probably because you don't realize how busy your life is. You know, especially here in the Northeast, life moves at a frantic pace, doesn't it? Too fast. I was at the stoplight just two days ago, and this woman comes up behind me, and the light is red, and she waits for maybe five seconds, and then she's, I'm the first one in line. She zips her car around mine, looks at the red light, and then flies through the red light. It's like, where do you possibly have to go that those seven seconds were worth it, you know? Like, we are, we are so hectic and so frantic. I was talking to uh, Justin. He was just describing just what's going on in Portland. And he was saying that, boy, you really even sense in different areas of the country how much slower life can be than compared to here in the Northeast. He was saying how they, they got started around 10 a.m. And he's like, yeah, you know, we kind of start late here in Portland. And, you know, then they shut down around 6 o'clock. And he's like, we're just getting going. And they're already, they're already cutting their day down. And so life fast here and it feels frantic i had some friends who just went down to north carolina and the first thing they came back and said was like man life is so much slower down in north carolina i really believe that god has given us the antidote to this rushed life that if we're not careful if we adopt this busyness on the outside and if we're not careful this this busyness on the outside becomes busyness on the inside and we lose the ability to to still ourselves and to quiet ourselves before god and if we're not careful if if we don't think well about this and we don't think through it on a regular basis we end up just adopting this this busy mindset and before we know it it's been a long time since we've stilled ourselves before God and listen to his voice. And so what are we talking about? We're talking about silence and solitude. Let me define them for you just so that we know what we're talking about. Silence is the act of, of choosing to refrain from speaking 
or from having exterior noise. So you, there's no music going, right? It's just silence. You're, just, you're quiet before God. Maybe you're reading. Maybe you're just praying in your spirit, but you're, you're choosing to withhold from speaking for spiritual purposes. In conjunction with this is solitude. Solitude is the spiritual discipline of, of temporarily withdrawing from everyone and everything else. So you're getting away from the noise. You're getting to a place where you're by yourself, where uh, maybe the phone has been pushed away, the computer is closed, and the external voices and things that are part of your life are temporarily just pushed to the side for a little while. And I don't know about you, but if you've ever tried this, it feels a little strange, you know? This week, as I've been preparing for this, I've been in the morning really trying to adopt this. And I would sit for, you know, maybe five or ten minutes and just be quiet. And I tell you what, it was really, really weird. Because we're so accustomed to noise, even, even in my quiet time, right? So I open up the Bible and I read a little bit, but I'm so accustomed to beginning to just talk to God and just to, just to read through and, and just pray these things back to Him that I'm reading that I realized that when I actually stopped talking for a little while, it kind of got uncomfortable, Because I've grown so accustomed to noise. And when I just stop, it was like the air was like heavy almost. Silence feels a little uncomfortable, doesn't it? Three or four seconds of of quiet feels a little bit uncomfortable. It's almost like somebody wants to speak and, and fill the air because it feels awkward because there's nothing going on. But if you'll press in like I did this week and I just kind of fought through it and just said, you know what, I need to learn this. This has to be a, become a part of my daily life. I think you'll find like I did that some of the, the sweetest moments of meeting with God happened in those quiet moments when I just said, I want to be still before him. I'm not going to speak. Just internally I'm just saying, God, would you, would you talk to me right now? God, I want to hear from you. And he speaks. I'm going to give you five reasons why I think you should, you should make this a part of your life. All right, we're going to buzz through these pretty, pretty quick. Five reasons. First is this, the example of Jesus. The example of Jesus. As we look at the life of Jesus, it's important for us to recognize which of those things in his life were for him to do and which of those things he was modeling for us, okay? So you look at the life of Jesus, you see him go to the cross, and though he tells us in metaphorical sense that we're to take up our cross, that act was for Jesus alone. Jesus never married, and that's not instructive that all of us aren't to marry, all right? So some of these things are just for Jesus alone, but there are an enormous amount of things that Jesus models for us as the way we are to live, right? We see Jesus' compassion, the compassion of Jesus to be modeled by his followers, his, his dedication to the Father, his trust in the will of God, things like standing up for truth, Things like standing up for holiness. These are all things that we look at Jesus and we can say, wow, I should make that a part of my life. And the same thing goes with solitude. There's examples all throughout the gospel of Jesus pulling away and getting solitude away. You, you notice, I don't know if you've, you've read the story, but Jesus gets baptized by John the Baptist and it's sort of his inauguration into his three years of ministry. And what does he do? At the moment ministry starts, he goes off into the desert for 40 years. It's there that he has that interaction with the devil in which he's tempted. Some of you know that story. But what's really interesting if you read that account in Luke is it says Jesus went off into the wilderness and he was filled with the Spirit. It says he comes back 
and he's filled in the power of the Spirit. So Jesus found something in those 40 days of solitude. There's plenty of examples. I don't want to list them all for you. There's not time for it, but one last one. In Luke 4.42, it says this. It says, And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving him. So put yourself in Jesus' shoes. There's, there are people everywhere who are clamoring for your attention, people who have very real needs. And in some ways, it almost feels like selfish, right? You're like, Jesus, where are you going? There are crowds everywhere needing you. But Jesus knew that his ability to, to pour out on these people was directly related to his times of solitude with the Father and the refreshing that would come from those times. And that's number two. Number two is to be refreshed, to be restored. It's recorded in Mark chapter 6 how after an extended season of just physical and spiritual output, Jesus says to the disciples, he says this, he says, come away by yourselves to a lonely place and rest a while. And so Jesus sees that the disciples have been working hard and pouring out, and he knows that what they need is a time of restoration in which they pull back. And the same thing that was true for them is true for us. There's restoration to be found in that. Third thing is to declare our dependence on him. To declare our dependence on him. I don't know if you can relate to this, but one of the things that I've found in my own life is that one of the reasons I have a hard time with something like silence and solitude is that it really feels like it's a waste of time. And that's just me being honest. Sometimes, you know, you look at the calendar for the day and you just think, man, if I can just get going on all those things, I have a much better chance of getting them done. And yet God tells us it's not the way things work in the kingdom, is it? It's like, how can, possibly be, how can, how can sitting possibly give me more hours in the day? How can that possibly empower me? And yet we see examples of it all throughout the scriptures. I mean, God, don't you know I've got important things to do? And he's like, come and sit at my feet, my son. Come and sit. Martin Luther, the famous reformer, has this quote in which he says, I've got so much to do today that I've got to find three hours in prayer before I start it. So he's saying all those things that I, that I want to do, all the things that I want to accomplish, I can't accomplish them without starting my morning with God and being restored, and being filled up, and being prepared for all the things that he has. You see, I'm too busy for that. Just too busy to not accomplish anything. Too important. Got too many important things to do. How can I possibly not get out of my bed and just start going on the day? It feels like a waste of time. I'm reminded of that story, I think it's in Luke chapter 10, of, of Mary and Martha. And some of you know it. Let me read it for you. It says, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. And choosing 
in those first moments of the day or throughout your day, to be quiet before the Lord is saying to him, I know there are important things for me to get done, but I am declaring to you that I am utterly helpless without you, that I utterly depend on you for all things. And so I'm going to trust that you're going to stretch my hours, if you will, by me dedicating this time to you and giving you this time. The fourth thing is to seek God's will. To seek God's will. You know, you see Jesus do this all throughout the Gospels. And it's a little confusing, right? Because God, Jesus is both 100% God and 100% man. There's certainly mystery in that. I get that. And yet, it says all throughout the Gospels that Jesus, anytime important decisions would come, he would pull away. And so one of his most important decisions was selecting the 12 disciples. And it records in Luke chapter 6 that he spent the entire night up in the mountains praying. And then he came down from the mountain and he selected the disciples. And so in those seasons when you've got big questions or little questions or things that you really need to hear from the Lord from, it is absolutely imperative that you learn the art of pulling away seeking time alone with God in order that he can speak to you and you can help ascertain his will for you in this decision. And lastly, it's this, to hear the voice of Jesus. To hear the voice of Jesus. In this recent article that was in New York Times, it records um, this, this project that was just done by this auditory neuroscientist. Sounds like a smart guy. At Brown University, his name was Seth Horowitz, and he would open, he would have these, these people come in, these clients, and he would open with a question. He would say, what do you hear right now? And because it had hooked up to brainwaves or whatever, somehow he was able to tell that the brain would do something completely different when it switched into listening mode. When it went from just hearing everything around it to, to tuning in and listening. And he said that the, the key difference between the sense of hearing and the skill of listening is Attention. Attention. God wants to teach you attention in listening. He says listening requires our brains to actively choose to quiet the noise around you. He makes the case that listening is a skill that can be developed over time. And in our world of just digital distraction and information overload, learning to listen, especially to the voice of God, is something that you and I need to be working on regularly and often if we are going to grow in our ability to hear God's voice. I don't know if there are, are, are characters in the Bible who you find yourself really drawn to, who you really like, and you kind of find yourself in them. You find comfort in a lot of ways in them. Uh, the prophet Elijah is one of those for me. I don't know how much you know about Elijah, but he was a, a prophet in the nation of Israel several hundred years before the birth of Christ. And he is, he is serving in this role in a time when Israel has walked far from God. So Elijah, the, the king and queen at the time, is this king named Ahab and this woman named Jezebel. And Jezebel loves, uh, loves worshiping Baal, and so she has introduced that to uh, Jewish culture. And so they've begun worshiping Baal, and she brings all these prophets. And there's this just incredible story of Elijah going toe-to-toe with these 450 prophets. And I don't have time to tell the whole story. Some of you know it. If you want to read it, you can find it in 1 Kings chapter 17, I think. And so he goes toe-to-toe with these 450 prophets, and God utterly shows up for him, and he is victorious, and all of these prophets are killed. All of these false prophets 
of the God of Baal are killed. And so this, as you might imagine, just kind of puts a target on his back with this wicked queen, Jezebel. And so Elijah, this man who God has just done incredible things through, who is a man of God, who's got faith that you and I could really learn a lot from, gets completely scared and runs away. She wants Elijah's head. He's in trouble and he's fearful and he flies And what's really interesting is the story doesn't record him stopping to pray, doesn't record him pulling anyone in to to really convene about this. He just gets terrified and runs away. He doesn't ask for help. He does what you and I in a tired and vulnerable moment might actually do. We don't look at the faithfulness of God that that just showed up so clearly. Instead, we just look at ourselves and, and we find fear and we find no courage and he runs the other way. He feels like there's, there's this entire army behind him, so he's scared to go backwards. And yet, he, you can see in the story, it's like he doesn't have the strength to go forward. And so, I don't know about you, but man, I can really see myself in Elijah. And so whatever you want to call it is, is this man who God had done just the most incredible miracle through, not long after, is now running for his life, utterly scared. He visibly experienced the power of God. And yet, not long after, he forgot it. His courage is gone. And yet, what's really, really sweet about this story is you watch God just pursuing him the whole way through. And there's an incredible story about uh, God choosing to feed him a couple of times through angels. And, and he sends him on this 40-day journey. And there's a lot of really cool imagery in that 40-day journey, both about Israel in the wilderness and about the story we talked about earlier of Jesus in the desert for those 40 days. But he, he gets this strength for the journey. And it brings him there. And he, he finds himself at Mount Horeb, which is also known as Mount Sinai. And he finally hears the voice of God. And I want to just read to you how that happens. 1 Kings 19, verse 11 says, And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind came an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? You know, this great man that he was, this man of incredible faith, You also see just this enormous fragility, this enormous vulnerability, and it reads so much like my story and perhaps times of your story. But you see how God does not abandon him. God stays faithful with him the entire way through. And it reminds me that in in every single story, God makes redemption out of what is happening. And so maybe if nothing else, what God wants to say to you tonight is that that thing that you're in the middle of, that thing that that you cannot possibly see the way out, God wants to tell you that he's there in it with you and that he wants to walk through it with you. And that in some incredible way, which right now you can't see, God wants to actually use that to make you more like his son. There are promises of that all throughout scripture. If nothing else, maybe that's what God wants to say to you tonight, that I'm not done with you yet. Though you've turned your back on me, I will not turn my back on you. And maybe this whole silence and solitude thing is getting thrown out, but God just wants to speak his grace over your life again. 
I don't know all the individual stories, so that's for you to know, but perhaps that's what God has for you. But I want you to notice that within all this drama here with Elijah, the point at which Elijah finally hears God is not in the big and grand, right, of the fire and the earthquake. We see the story of Elijah hearing in the sound of silence, and some call it the still small voice. And Elijah at long last hears and encounters the divine. And oftentimes, turning to God in this way can be the most powerful way to hear his voice. And yet so often, because of the pace of our lives, it feels like it's the most difficult. You're trying to balance work. You're trying to balance family commitments. You're trying to figure out what it looks like to have friends and care for a spouse and care for kids or you're in college and you've got so much work to do that you're not even sure how to balance all that. It's hard to make time for prayer. It's hard to make time for stillness before God. It's hard to sit before Him and just be silent. Even when we do that, it feels like it's incredibly difficult to turn our brains off, doesn't it? And yet in this story and all throughout, When we find the stillness within, oftentimes that's where we finally once again hear the voice of God. It's often much easier to talk to God than it is to sit and listen. But there's such enormous power in this discipline that if you will begin to incorporate it regularly into your life, I believe it will unlock for you a new level of sweetness in your, in your walk with God. I believe that. I believe that. So how do we go about doing this, okay? If Jesus has modeled it for us and we see throughout Scripture that it's actually good for us, what are some really practical tools on, on how to go about doing this? I just want to give you three really simple things. Again, nothing overly profound here. I'm not trying to be clever. I just want to remind you of this, okay? The first thing we've got to do is you've got to find a place. You've got to find a place. For some of you, it's in your house, perhaps. Maybe that means getting up before your roommates. Maybe it means getting up before the kids. That's certainly my experience right now. It's like if I don't get up before my wife and my daughter do, it's really hard to find those moments of solitude. And so I got to set my alarm earlier. I get to bed earlier so that I can do that. There have been seasons where I've actually had to go searching in kind of random places to find this. I, I remember uh, I was an engineer <clears throat> back before I started working at the church, and I worked in this environment where customer service, we all kind of were in one big room, and it was utter chaos all the time. And so Brittany loves telling the story, and she embellishes it. But I would go to the bathroom and hide, not going to the bathroom. I would just sit and hide there, all right? So I'd go probably four or five times throughout the day because it was loud and chaotic, and I'd go and I'd sit down, not kidding, I'd sit down in the bathroom with all, you know, not going, but whatever, Awkward? No, not awkward. Okay? I, I, I would just sit and it'd be like glorious quiet. There's nobody around talking. Nobody's talking in the bathroom, right? Because that's the weird guy, right? So nobody's actually talking. And so I would just sit there and I'd be like, thank you, Lord. This quiet. And then I was the awkward guy talking when the other people came in. But sometimes you have to be inventive with your quiet time. I, I know there have been times in my life where I had the 30-minute lunch break and I'd go out to my car and I'd just sit in my car for those 30 minutes, and I'd just experience solitude. And I'd read the scriptures and just enjoy that time with the Lord. You've got to find your place. You've got to find where it can be quiet and where you can be by yourself. Secondly, you've got to plan for it. You've got to plan for it daily. 
all of these spiritual disciplines are not things that you'll naturally just fall into, right? If you don't plan for time of prayer, you're not going to naturally just often find yourself praying. If you don't plan to read the scriptures, you're not just going to do it. It's the same thing with silence and solitude. If you don't work it into your schedule, it's almost impossible to find. So for me personally, what I've had to do is I've had to basically back up whatever time I need to start getting ready for the day, I back up my day two hours, and that's where my alarm goes off. I do that so that I can get up, I can have, you know, an hour just with God and then, you know, some time exercising, and that's like the way to start the day. Because I've found that if I just, if I just roll out of bed, hop in the shower, head off to work, my life feels scattered, my head feels scattered because I've not sat in stillness before God. So planning for it can often mean going to bed a little bit earlier so that you can get up a little bit earlier. And everybody's schedule is different. That's certainly not law, but that's just recommendation. Just get up a little bit earlier, and it's a way that you can plan it. Bring a pen. Bring a journal. For the love, put your phone away. Put your phone away, please. We are such a phone-addicted society, are we not? I cannot tell you how much it drives me crazy to sit in a meeting with someone and hear their phone go off because they cannot not check it, all right? I know if I'm sitting with someone and I hear, I'm like, five, four, three, excuse me, one second. They pull out their phone and I'm like, for the love. We are a phone-addicted society. And you know if your phone beeps in the morning, it's going to interrupt your time with the Lord. Just again, practical. Put the phone away. Put the computer away. Put it on do not disturb, all right? Get quiet before the Lord. Third is just plan some extended times. Plan a couple times throughout the year where you can spend an afternoon away, or if you've got it, you can spend a whole day away. We as a staff have begun incorporating three to four times a year what we call spiritual retreat days. And that's for every staff member, once a quarter or so, you take a work day and you just go and you just get alone and be quiet. Because we've realized how how important it is for us. And so we want to institute that in, in all layers of staff. And so if you can... Plan a few extended times. Maybe you've got a trade-off babysitting or your husband or your wife needs to spend the afternoon with the kids so that you can get away. But it's really important to plan some extended times. If you can, uh, Raj and Deb Andrus, who we love, uh, they're elders here, just moved out to Montana. They do silence and solitude retreats. And if you can get on one of those, it's a great opportunity to do this. All right? All right, in closing, lastly, One of the unintended consequences in a good way of silence and solitude is I believe it helps the gospel take root in your heart. Like, Mike, what is that? What is that? You know, we've become so accustomed to talking all the time. We've become so accustomed to using our words to to impact how people think of us. I don't know about you, but I'm so quick to use my words to be defensive of myself when somebody says something bad about me. Or I want to use my words to kind of, kind of shape the image that people have of me. And what I've found that as, as stillness before God has begun to become a part of my life, I don't find myself justifying myself before God as often. I don't find myself justifying myself before others as often. Because my times of stillness have allowed God to embed my identity deeper in me. The calling that he has on my life, I can hear it better. I can receive it in greater measure because of those times of stillness. And in doing so, 
the gospel begins to just take root in deeper and deeper measure. And you look back 12 months later and you look back five years later and you say, you know what? There are a lot of things that used to be a part of my life that God has chiseled away. Holiness has become a a greater description of me because your times with God have been chiseling you and making you look more like his son. So I just want to challenge you as we close. Here's my challenge. Sometime in the next five days, if you're looking for something to take away from this, my challenge would be that you would take 10 minutes sometime in the next five days and be utterly still and quiet before God. Maybe you bring a pen, maybe you bring a journal, but you you get before him and you just say, Lord, I just want to hear your voice. Would you quiet my voice and allow me to hear yours? And then quiet for 10 minutes. Just challenge you to do that. Let's pray. God, we do thank you that you are always in this process of making us look more like your son. And so God, as we look at these spiritual disciplines over the next couple of weeks, things that you use in that process of becoming more like Jesus, I pray that you would give us the wisdom to know that they're important, the discernment to see that they are those things that you are using to make us more like your son. Father, grant us the discipline to incorporate them into our lives. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. For more resources and information, visit OurCityChurch.org.